0: Hello and welcome to Millennial
1: Love, a podcast from The Independent on everything to do with love, sexuality, identity and more. This week I am very excited to be joined by model, writer and broadcaster Jack Guinness. Jack is the founder of The Queer Bible, an online LGBT magazine he launched in 2017 that has now become a book of the same name. Packed with essays written by a range of LGBT icons, including Sir Elton John, the Queer Bible is a celebration of the works and lives of the global queer community. In this episode, Jack and I discuss the book, and in particular his essay on how RuPaul has inspired him to embrace who he is. We also talk about self-worth, the value of labeling your sexuality, and conforming to gender stereotypes in the fashion industry, with Jack recalling how he was told by brands and agents to actually conceal his sexuality. Enjoy the show. Talk to me about the Queer Bible. I'm so excited for this to come out. It's such a brilliant book, and so many amazing people that you've got involved with it. So. Talk to me about what it is and how you went about choosing who you were going to include in it.
2: Thank you very much, first of all. And I'm very excited to share the book with the world. It's really weird. Uh, It's like maybe hiding a baby in your house and then finally revealing it to everyone because it's been going in my head for for years now. So to finally eventually share it with everyone is really exciting. So the Queer Bible really um, simply summed up is I ask my heroes to write about their queer heroes. And then each essay is accompanied by an illustration by either an ally or an LGBTQ plus artist from around the world. So it's it's a really beautiful visual project. It feels almost like a graphic novel. You've got these really beautiful, diverse illustrations in different styles. And then each essay is by a singular voice, someone that I find really inspiring and exciting and then they're talking about someone that changed their life. So you get two narratives, you get the writer, and then you get the subject. And the writer kind of gives you a way in to that person's story. So for example, Graham Norton, who I can't believe is part of the book, he's one of the kindest, funniest people in the world. He writes about Armistead Morpin, who wrote Tales of the City. Um, and so Graham takes you on a journey of leaving rural Ireland Going off to America, traveling across America, arriving in San Francisco, and then basically entering into the real world tales of the city, the LGBTQ plus community in San Francisco, and then he discovers Armistead, and you get this beautiful dual narrative about two fantastic queer heroes, um, one of whom we are familiar with, and one of whom some of the readers might not be familiar with. So the whole philosophy is basically like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You've got. Someone's incredible narrative that are sometimes very funny, very moving, very personal about a story of becoming, about realizing who you are in the fullness of who you are in your gender and your sexuality, and then they invite you into their world and explore someone that changed their life. So that's the the medicine.
1: Mm. That's it's a lovely. very Mary think...
2: Poppins way of describing it. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but that's that's lovely. There's nothing wrong with Mary Poppins, but I think it's she's so a queer icon. Exactly. Exactly. But like all the essays are such, um, they're so personal. And I think they're so relatable to anyone, you know, they deal with so many other subjects, like, you know, insecurities and shame and, you know, body insecurities and all of that stuff. It's really there's so much in there. Um, I want to talk specifically about your essay on RuPaul, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, as I said, there is so much integrated in it about your personal life, and I guess the the first thing I want to talk to you about is your childhood, which you describe in the essay as very beige. So why was it so beige? Well,
2: it literally was beige. That's not like a clever literary uh, metaphor for my childhood. It's not like some weird I don't know color pathetic fallacy. It was literally beige. So we grew up in South London, in the intersection between like Brixton, Stockwell, and Vauxhall. My dad was a vicar in an inner city church, and we lived in. I didn't realize this until recently I went back and looked up at where where I grew up and we grew up in a really small flat it felt big because it had big personalities in it it was always busy it was full of energy um but it was so I was growing up in the in the 80s and I was the youngest so everything I wore everything we had was like inherited or begged stolen or borrowed so it was kind of like a uh, like a shadow of the 70s so everything was like that weird Beige brown colour. All the food was like brown flakes and brown pasta and the walls, the wallpaper that was peeling was like this kind of beigey-brown colour. We had a beige Volvo. It, you know, it literally was beige.
1: <laughs> okay, the reason why I asked you and why I thought it could, because I think it is probably more metaphorical. It is a metaphor sense. as well.
2: I was teasing <laughs> okay. you. Also.
1: I know. But the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because of the contrast with then what you go on to say about glamour and I think, you know, you write that glamour offers a tempting and dangerous allure for many queer people. And so the contrast between those two things, you know, it's sort of beige versus colour. So can you talk to me a bit sure. more about what I, I feel you that, mean by that, sure. about the glamour? And I
2: loved also what you said about how universal this book is. You know, this book is about LGBTQ plus stories, but it's about people working out who they are. It's about people that feel rejected or damaged by the world and fighting to understand and love who they are and that's universal that's the teenage experience isn't it no matter who you are where you're from so another universal teenage experience is feeling frustrated with what you find around you and not feeling that it matches up who you are it's not the life that you wanted you know very few of us are born into the life that we want um i've got I'm born and raised in London, as I said, but so many of my friends you know grew up in small towns where they felt stifled they they loved a certain type of music or fashion that wasn't um that wasn't around them and they had to seek that out. They went to the big metropolises and and I definitely felt like kind of trapped by my you know there was a lot of love and a lot of laughter and a lot of color and bright and brightness in my childhood but but i definitely felt the need to go to the bright lights of the city i wanted to be with people that i felt that were like me and that's definitely a a, a universal experience for young people that feel i don't know like thwarted you know they want yeah. more and and i think that leads lots of us to the extreme to that unhealthy extreme which for me you know was was a life that is really exciting and really interesting but for a lot of time felt like it didn't have meaning. Um, and, and would you agree that's something that like lots of people go through? We go off and we go maybe off the deep end. We go too far in the other direction.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, I think there's a, when you're growing up, I think there's a general feeling when things are going terribly, which they often do when you're a teenager, you kind of find comfort in this idea of like, there is something more out there And I think if you feel like you don't quite fit in your friendship group or you don't quite fit in your environment, you're like, I will find my people and I will find my place. And I think sometimes, like you said, that can drive you to these very extreme places where you wind up going out till, you know, god knows when every night one every weekend two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just just one or two in the morning exactly um and I think often unfortunately when you're in that kind of place you don't realize you're getting into a toxic cycle no and the journey until you're out of it yeah the journey
2: to find your tribe means by mm-hmm. definition you need to try different tribes you need to try different people and you know if you're like a 15 year old kid going out in London sneaking into bars and clubs while you're on the hunt for your lovely tribe of people, bad people are going to find you and try and take advantage of you, and it's 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 tough and it's dangerous. And I, I, I in the process of making the book and in the process of making the queer bible, I've spoken to so many people and. You know, lots of the people, I remember having a conversation with Jodie Harsh, the DJ, and she was saying, you know, how much for her go, running away and going to those clubs was a really positive experience. You know, she loved it. She loved going out and like being wild and meeting all these interesting people. And and that's brilliant. I think for me, the journey to find self-acceptance and find people that I love and that love me um, and that are healthy, positive friends has has been a long journey. And there's definitely... Damage was done along the way. You know, I did damage to myself and other people did damage to me. I remember watching Mm -hmm. I May Destroy You like a lot of people during lockdown. um, And it was really amazing because we were still and we could really take in the fullness of that show and then really sit with it and then not just kind of go out and go, oh, I saw a great show. You know, I I remember getting polaxed by it and I was sat by the couch like, like I'd been punched almost. And... I thought back over so many situations in my life, and I thought so much about consent, and I thought about so many experiences that aren't like clear black and white abuse, but Mm. situations that I was uncomfortable with. Or I look back and I think, you know, um, was I in a position to give my consent or it's not even about necessarily just sex it's about different situations and environments and and dynamics yeah. that you find yourself in so I think it's a it's a process really of, of making peace with with what you've got what you've done and what you've been through and also kind of processing that
1: mm. I'm really interested by what you said about consent because that's something I think about a lot um and I've written about this in my book which is based on this podcast this is about is my that-
2: book now though today
1: Sorry, Jack, <laughs> this is about Jack's book.
2: I'm <laughs> kidding, go on. Slap on the wrist. <laughs> I really want to hear this, go
1: on. <laughs> Um. Yeah, so anyway, in the book, there's a chapter on Me Too, and the whole chapter is basically about how, like, so many, me and so many of my friends, when Me Too happened, we were kind of like, oh, this is awful, this is terrible. But, you know, we're so lucky this didn't happen to any of us. Like, we've never been raped or or anything like that. And then slowly over time... Mm because you know in the news it was these really extreme mm-hmm. stories and you know extreme and in inverted commas of like the Harvey Weinsteins and stuff and then over time as we talked about it and we reflected on things and we watched major story we sort of looked back on all of these sexual encounters we had and realized so many of them actually weren't completely consensual and I think what you said about black and white is really interesting as well because people come at consent and assault particularly you know from the legal system in a very black and white point of view you know it's rape or it's not rape Mm. and it's 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 not really like that a lot of the time we're we're all
2: our generation is having the millennial generation is even having to understand what consent is because we think of consent as like yes you can yes and then anything goes basically and i think what we're all realizing is that it's far more nuanced than that um as a concept and that abuse uh is uh a lot grayer than that. Um, I remember talking to one friend after I May Destroy You and she realized that she'd always had sexual experiences after she was drunk. And she says, I don't know if I've ever legally been able to give consent or receive it from the other person, which she was really shocked by. She was like, oh my God, like have I been checking with other people? And for a woman as well, because the narrative is always the other way around. She was really challenged by that. And I think also the thing that was so brave and dangerous and brilliant about the ending of I May Destroy You was how um, Cole dealt with the attacker. And that in our minds, it's like, you're, you're either Harvey Weinstein or you're an angel. You know, you're either this like violent terrifying person or you're like a perfect person that's never done anything wrong. And I think all of us looking at our own culpability, our own experiences, the people that we've been involved with that are potentially really good, lovely people. I'm not saying the guy and I may destroy you was, who's not at all. But, but that we, we look at the complexity of those interactions as well. Um, and really, kind of look back at our own behavior as well as just looking at other people's it 's really challenging, and I think it 's something yeah. that, as a generation i think and and as friendship groups, we all need to be really honest about and all really talk about the fact we 're having this conversation now is is completely brilliant. I had so many brilliant talks after I may destroy you, and I hope we continue to to do yeah. that and check in with each other and check in with ourselves about what we're, what we're okay with what we 're comfortable with as we process previous experiences you know what are we is there trauma that needs to be dealt with? do we need to Forgive ourselves. Apologize to other people. Like, let's let's work through all this stuff.
0: Mm,
1: yeah, I completely agree. It's so it's so brilliant how many important conversations that that show struck up. I'm still so pissed off that it wasn't nominated for a Golden Globe. That
2: was insane.
1: I know, and um, Emily in Paris was <laughs> anyway. Different conversation I Do for not day. get me started on Emily in
2: bloody Paris.
1: <laughs> so I know you used to work as a male model. You still work as a male yeah, model. Yeah, I do. I
2: did a shoot yesterday, which is why I look like Krusty the Clown. They coloured in my <laughs> eyebrows and I look like a really surprised like <laughs> lady.
1: I like it. <laughs> I'm you. into it. Um, so I know that previously you had been told by agents or fashion stylists to, to butcher up when you were on shoots. Um, and you write about this in your essay. So can you talk to me a bit about that and this kind of idea of adopting a straitjacket as you create Matthew so, Todd?
2: So Matthew Todd, who's one of the contributors um, to the book, he is he wrote basically a really interesting book that's like a kind of a psycho- psychological self-help book, part memoir called Straits Jacket. And that refers to the straitjacket that a lot of LGBTQ plus people voluntarily wear, which is that self-imposed shame and internalized homophobia that we take in from the outside, from society um, and apply to ourselves. So we voluntarily submit ourselves to prolonged pain, prolonged trauma, locking ourselves in a straitjacket of society and our own making. And that's something I did. You know, I spent years coming to terms with who I am, like loving who I am kind of a little bit enough to get through the day And then sharing that with my friends and then with my family, and then in my career, you know, bounding into the agency, being like, you know, I'm so proud of who I am, I'm gay. And then being like, well, you cannot tell clients that. And when you're on shoots, you have to really man it up. You can't do anything that would um, make the client suspect that you might be gay. And that was for numerous reasons. One, I had kind of long hair and a beard. I was after Jesus, the second guy to have that look. So I feel like I really popularized it. Um, in the mainstream, you did. I, you I no did. question. <laughs> Grazia actually said that I invented the man bun. That's actually true. And they and they called, christened it the man, the man bun. And
0: wow, look,
2: I haven't done many things in my life, so I know I'm not saving the world. I didn't discover a cure for cancer, but I invented the man bun, which then obviously became a monster and a global phenomenon.
1: That is that is all thanks to you Thank Jack so that's pretty that is pretty cool <laughs> Jeez, my
2: life is pathetic anyway so <laughs> so my agents I was selling kind of Savile Row tailoring or I was selling like outward bound stuff so quite like you know heteronormative stereotypical straight whatever that means um a look and so the kind of assumption was that that one clients wouldn't want a gay guy to represent that brand or maybe it wouldn't make them nervous about whether I could do the job and fulfill that role because modeling is playing a role and then the other worry I think was that consumers if I was too vocal if I did interviews and talked about being gay that consumers then wouldn't want to buy product from an openly gay person because I think the feeling is that models need to be aspirational and I think the fear was you know is a straight guy shopping or whatever store going to want to aspire to that to be that guy. Um, so this is like you know fifteen years ago and a decade ago. Um, so I then had to kind of go back into the closet at work, and all my friends find this hilarious because they're like, "Jack, everyone knew you were gay. Like you didn't. You're rubbish at manning up. Like you literally prance around." Um, so in my head, I thought I was doing a great job. Maybe I was just doing a terrible job. But um, I then, you know, kind of almost voluntarily we. Re- re-put that straight jacket on, I re-traumatized myself. I kind of went back into the closet at work, which was a really damaging thing to do because you you're doing it to yourself. You know, you you're 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 voluntarily hiding who you are and that causes such internalized shame and and it's not good for you. And it made me really unhappy and it made me really sick and I got really skinny. I didn't have like an active eating disorder, but I was so unhappy that I, I kind of just, I didn't stop eating as much as I should. And I got really, really skinny. And I remember I booked a big campaign and I turned up the day before and they said, we can't have you on the shoot. You're too, you can't fit the clothes, like they're falling off you. Um, and and that was a moment where I was like, I'm really unhappy. I really need to sort this out. And I went back into therapy, um, which I've done many times in my life um, and I highly recommend it. And I and I really, forgave myself um and then i really engaged with becoming like fully myself and becoming a fully integrated person and part of that part of my healing um was launching the queer bible website which then led me to to create this book now that that we're releasing so for me the queer bible saved my life and also i love my friends tease me they're like you're such a drama queen you like you couldn't just come out you had to like launch a gay brand and like You had to do a book with Elton John. Like, can you not just say you're gay and just be like a normal person? I'm like, no, no, I need to call Elton. He needs to hear about this. I'm going to release a book of essays, illustrated essays about the queer experience. So yeah, I'm a little bit extra and very annoying. So apologies for that, everyone.
1: No, never apologise for that. I am extra annoying too. And also I definitely prance around as well. Great. Um, I think everyone should. I want to talk to you a bit more about the gender stereotypes in the fashion industry because I think today it's very easy to look at the industry from the inside and think, you know, gender fluidity is being celebrated more and more, like look at designers like Harris Reid kind of leading the way with that gender neutrality. So I wonder, do you think it is still a problem then, that you have fashion brands like those Savile Row tailing brands, for example, where they are kind of marketing themselves exclusively to straight people and therefore the models they cast kind of have to reflect that. Like, do you think that still happens?
2: I think weirdly fashion used to be really brilliant at being more inclusive and representative. Like if you look at the seventies, there was so many more black designers. There was so much more gender fluidity. It felt, like we almost went backwards for a period. That was maybe because of Thatcherism and that aesthetic and that masculine like money and greed. And it was, those were all quite narrow ideas, aren't they? That women had to be like men, like put on your shoulder pads. It was all quite of a narrow idea of strength and success and masculinity. And now, you know, things are happening so quickly. I'm so excited. Harris Reed is a friend of mine. They're an incredible designer. They're dressing Harry Styles. They're getting clothes on the front cover of American Vogue, Harry in a, in a, in a dress or a skirt. It's really exciting. There's so many um, really successful accepted trans and non-binary models, so many openly gay and lesbian models. It's a really exciting time and things have changed very quickly. And I think part of that is because of social media. I feel that the public told these companies, this is what we want. We want to be seen. And we are not just this type of woman. We are not just this shape of woman. We're not just this, um, this skin color. We're not just this gender or sexuality. And I think consumers, cool kids are dictating to the brands and saying, if you want to sell to us, you need to represent us. Um, like makeup campaigns are changing and not just having girls with like alabaster white skin because these big brands are seeing that there's money to be made. So on the one hand, I'm really happy that there are shifts happening and I don't really care how they're happening. But on the other hand, I think we we can't deny that these are brands that just want to make lots of money. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with capitalism and rep- uh, and then wanting to be, um a better organization but we need to make sure that these changes these corporate changes are real and they're not performative and we need to make sure that trans non-binary um slightly gender non-conforming male presenting models aren't seen as a trend that are taken in used and discarded and part of how that happens is through real representation throughout organizations so it means that the camera the photographer is a queer person or a person of color, that the the people that are making the decisions in the head office are as diverse maybe as the campaigns look on the outside now. So I really want change throughout the industry and a change that is lasting and not performative um, and doesn't feel that LGBTQ plus people are being used like objects as a kind of trendy, shiny object for now. Um, But then you look at someone like Edward who. Paris Lees, the brilliant journalist and writer, has written mm. about for uh, the Queer Bible book. Edward Enniffel is doing that. At Vogue, there is systematic internal change in the in the employees. If you look at a photograph, it's such a, you know, like a shallow take on, on systematic change. But if you just look a pi- at a picture of the staff, it doesn't look like how it used to five years ago. Like, mm. that's really exciting to me. And, and Edward is bringing about... Serious change and that changes culture. There's that bit in the Devil Wears Prada when Meryl Streep's doing that stupid speech about like you think you're just wearing a belt, but that belt was decided da, 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 da. Um, I know I'm losing gay points for not knowing the whole speech off by heart, but but
1: I I it's a it's a cerulean blue. <laughs> that's it. You're so good.
2: Cerulean blue. I know
1: the scene so, very well. So
2: that is that that's just a fun metaphor for like how culture art fashion then bleeds out into the mainstream and does have real mm. world positive change so you know as as frivolous as it makes se- might seem to have um more diverse casting and just a m- modeling fashion campaign that can then make some kid feel seen and then that can make that kid feel empowered to be who they are and then they can go off and lead a really amazing life. So mm-hmm. I believe in the in the power of culture to bring about real world change. And and yeah. and hopefully I was a tiny little part of that with my popularization of the man bun.
1: No, I think you, so well. <laughs> I don't, I think you really, I mean, that honestly, it's a significant contribution Thank to popular the culture. It will be written about in years to come. Thank
2: you. How old up? plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: But I think it's so important to talk about fashion in this way because from an outside view people will look at fashion like I said and be like oh fashion is the one place where queer people can feel more comfortable than ever and I think that's something that people will have thought for years and actually you know the experience that you had and that I'm sure people still have in the industry because of capitalism because being told oh well we will sell this product better if we have a straight person Mm. marketing it or someone who is you know wearing a straight jacket pretending to be mm. straight so I think it is still really important to highlight it and you know I know and I'm sure you do too this also affects other industries like music and Hollywood where people in the public eye are told to conceal their sexuality I mean
2: that's a great example so people were like to me like Jack you're insane that didn't happen to you fashion's like such a uh, accepting industry that's such a great example look at Hollywood Hollywood is a very gay-friendly, gay place with lots of powerful, often white, cis, gay men in control. And yet it's one of the most homophobic industries ever. You pu- it's probably easier to come out as like the head of a bank than it is to come out as a, a Hollywood actor, or it, at least it mm-hmm. feels to be. Um, you know, Look at someone um, like Rupert Everett, who was such a leading man, and then got kind of sidelined because he came out as a gay person. I, I trained as an actor years ago, and I'm very happy uh, that I'm not an actor now. But I remember having meetings with agents, and they were like big agents who have represent very successful people. And they said, and I'm not saying that to make myself sound important. I'm saying that to be like, these are the, just, like, the culture makers within, within yeah. the industry. And they said to me, no, do you want to be like the gay best friend that has two scenes, or do you want to be the leading man? Because if you want to be the leading man, you need to act and perform a certain way. And that's in the interviews. So like, I, I look at some of these actors and I know one or two that are, that are gay and in the closet or maybe just don't talk about it in interviews. And I just, my heart goes out to them. I just think you've got the dream of what you want, but at what cost? I don't want that. Yeah. I am not prepared to make that cost for myself personally.
0: And mm, I know also I mean
2: the- it feels silly though, we're sitting here being like, oh my gosh, that poor multimillionaire actor can't talk about being gay in interviews with GQ, like, oh big whoop. But <laughs> it must fuck him up. It must be difficult.
1: Yeah, and just the 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 inter- the internal shame and trauma. The straight of that. jacket, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Like that that is, you know, not feeling that you can be open about who you are. I think the long-term psychological damages of that. Be really well, I can serious. yeah, I can
2: testify to that. It it yeah. it wrecks your mind, soul, and body. It's just not good for you. I I interviewed Sir Ian McKellen, and he's such a generous, lovely, funny man. Like he's everything you want Sir Ian McKellen to be. Like he's naughty and like bitchy and clever, and recites Shakespeare at the drop of a hat. And he was saying that you know it's not always safe to come out. You need to come out when it is safe for you to do so. Don't do it because you feel you should. You need to be physically and emotionally safe, and you need to have somewhere to sleep and have a roof over your head. But he says, once you do come out and you are safe to, you will never regret it and you will only be happier, you will only be a better version of yourself. He said he became a better uncle, a better brother, a better son. And he said he became a better actor, which I found really interesting. That's interesting. He was aligned, all of him was aligned so he could be the fullest version of himself. And, and I feel the same way, you know, I still have my issues. I still am just as fucked up as everyone else, but I'm less fucked up than I was when I was in the closet. <laughs>
1: I spoke about this with um, Monri Bergdorf when she came on the podcast because we were. She's great, and we were just talking about how how unfortunate it is that people even have to come out because we live in this heteronormative world yeah. where people literally assume that you're straight point. unless you tell them otherwise. And it's so true, and it's like God, that is so fucked up. Yeah, that you even have to tell people that because the assumption is otherwise. Oh well, just everyone is straight then.
2: Do you think it's changing? Because I meet some of my friends' younger siblings are like. They'll say there's a party and they make out with someone of the same sex. When I was a kid, the next day, everyone would be like, oh my God, Jenny made out with like Sandra. I didn't have any friends called that, but <laughs> Jenny and Sandra made out last night. Oh my God, they're lesbians. Whereas my yeah. friend was being like, oh yeah, no, we all just, there's no labeling. We just, you just do whatever you want to do. And and probably that's, you know, we're in a real bubble and like, that's probably not the norm everywhere, but I feel like things are moving forward in our culture.
1: I do think they are. I think when I was at school, I was the same. You know, if, if you know, I I have friends that were in the closet at school and have only come out, you know, since we've left as adults. Um, But I think now when I have conversations with my friends, you know, if, if someone in my friendship group, if a girl hooks up with a girl, there's no like, oh, so does this mean you're gay now? It's just like, it's not a conversation. You are just who you are. Exactly. And so I do think in that sense, there are changes. And, you know, I know that when we meet new people, We don't naturally assume someone's sexuality. No,
2: you don't. As an adult now, you don't. Mae Martin writes a really brilliant essay um, in the collection about Tim Curry, the actor who wasn't like overt about labelling himself. And a lot of the essays in the book, The Queer Bible, are about the importance of identity, of labelling, of naming, of being proud of who you are. And it's important that we do that for our own emotional and psychological development it's really important that we do that so we can have protected groups. So we can say like, okay, these are gay people. They deserve protection under the law for this reason or trans people deserve it for this reason. So labeling is helpful legally. But May Martin's essay is really interesting. It really blew me away. The essay is actually about how, yes, it's great that we've got labels so we could be accepted, but what's beyond that? Let's move beyond that. And it's what you're talking about with Monroe Bergdorf. It's the idea that maybe one day you won't say I'm gay, straight, even maybe trans, maybe gender will be, will be beyond gender, will be beyond the binary. And that to me is really exciting. If And May's, May's essay is all about this, about the idea that maybe one day May will just be May. And when May's doing interviews, people won't be asking May like, oh, how do you define yourself? What's your sexuality? How do you think about your gender? And I think that's quite a like mind-blowing futuristic concept. It is to me anyway, I'm quite like... Mm. No, stupid, no, I but I love the idea of not going to come out and just being Jack.
1: Yeah, well, I think we, I think we will get there. Just I Jack think the we'll idiot get think... with
2: the man bun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jack the man who created the man bun. I don't <laughs> have a man bun
2: anymore. I need to stress to your loyal listeners.
1: Why not? Is that is that intentional? Why? Yeah, not? I you cut feel it. like I, you, I you cut created this monster. And I
2: did well, what I did. I was really clever. <laughs> I pretended that I didn't want to cut my hair, but I was desperate to, and I got a L'Oreal campaign pretending that I was desperate to not cut my hair. So they paid me to cut it off. And I had to pretend that I was really sad on the day. And I was like, oh, my beautiful <laughs> man bun. And I was like going in the toilet being like, yes, I never had to look oh like my a God. Um. So yeah, so I, I, I got paid to cut it off. And, I, um, and I've never looked back. I've now just got That's hair amazing. like a normal human being.
1: Tell me about the origins of the Queer Bible, because you launched it, as you mentioned, the online magazine in 2017. Um, and I know that when you started that, that was partly inspired by something Sam Smith said, is that right? Yes, yeah, so
2: I was watching the Oscars and Sam Smith got in trouble for accidentally saying that they were the first queer person to win that Oscar and it turned out they weren't. Right. It was really mean and horrible and like, it was classic Twitter pile on of people instead of just celebrating this young, amazing queer artist that has come from England and conquered America. Like we were just, everyone's just being so mean and just piling on and just being like, you don't know your history. And lots of people came out and said, I love that I did that voice. You don't know your history. (laughs) And then people were coming out and saying, young queer people don't know their history. And I was like, (laughs) okay, well, I don't I'd like to think of myself as a relatively educated person. I was like, I don't think I know all my queer history. Like I've seen loads of cool movies about stuff and I've read a few books. So I went online and there are great resources. I'm not slagging them off, but now I am going to slag them off. They were all terrible. And they were all look like they'd been made in clip art, like in Microsoft Word with like, they were just shit. And I was thinking, well, like LGBTQ plus people are supposed to be like the most fabulous, brilliant, like visual clever, just amazing people. Obviously not um, not with the best vocabulary. I just ran out of steam there describing <laughs> gay people. How shit am I? Um, but I wa- I was like, okay, well, there needs to be a website, an easy website, like a gay queer Wikipedia, queeropedia, where people can go and they can find out about LGBTQ plus history. So I did it myself. So I tracked down different people to write essays about their hero. And because I didn't want to get sued and use images that were copyrighted I got illustrators to do illustrations so it all kind of happened by happy accident so one of the first people I tracked down was Robert Maplethorpe's boyfriend one of his boyfriends David Crowland who's an incredible photographer who went on to photograph some amazing people throughout the 80s and 90s and David writes an essay about going to the Chelsea Hotel meeting a young guy called Robert his girlfriend called Patty Smith and then he promptly steals Robert's Robert, Robert Maplethorpe off Patty Smith, not the other way round. That would be not <laughs> queer at all. Um, and so yeah, so if and then the essay is all about that. So if you don't know who Robert Maplethorpe is, you get this like brilliant, juicy story that intrigues you. So you want to go off and learn more and learn who Patty Smith is and learn who Robert is. And if you do know who they are, you get this untold story, this this extra narrative that maybe makes you think about Robert Maplethorpe and Patty Smith in a slightly different light. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole story. It's about teaching history through narratives, through the things that we all have in common. Um, and through that, we can celebrate our connectedness and we can also celebrate our uniqueness. You know, there are stories on there. I don't know what it's like to be a young black trans rapper growing up in Brooklyn. And the Queer Bible website uh, gave me a platform for people to tell those stories in their own voices. And um, without me as a white cis man, like editing them or, or or reinterpreting them through my lens, it's a space for other people to tell their stories and for me as mm-hmm. someone that spent years selling myself things being about me trying to get further in my fashion career to sit back and it just not be about me not be about selling not be about social media but be about um elevating other people um that to me has just been like the most humbling brilliant experience and I've I, I come like a reader I come humbly and I come to learn and and uh it's been a really really healing mind-blowing illuminating experience and I'm really happy now that we can share it in book form with with everyone
1: it's wonderful it's so good i mean congratulations i know there is one thing that you're still holding out for and you still haven't met a certain someone yes do you want to tell us about that? And we'll start launch a campaign well, to try if and- If we
2: could it. start that today, that would be really good. If yeah. we could um, mobilize the <laughs> listeners. I want t-shirts printed. <laughs> I want a hashtag, absolutely, maybe hats as well. So I wrote my essay in the book on RuPaul. Um, basically, the whole reason why I really started the Queer Bible is to just desperately try and meet RuPaul. I was, I'm was, i like flying a queer flag across the sea, trying to the ocean, trying to get attention, trying to get her to look at me. Um, so yeah, I've never met RuPaul. My whole essay is about how RuPaul, uh, started off as a performer and then discovered drag and is now kind of famous for being both a drag queen, but also appearing as RuPaul in, in, in suits as kind of out of drag, maybe in a different type of drag. And the metaphor that, that I, I drew, the parallel that I drew was that I, I had to put on a sort of drag to become successful or my unlimited version of success, um, which was straight drag. So I had to kind of put on the suits. I had to walk a certain way and I sold a certain type of masculinity just as RuPaul sells a certain type of femininity. Um, and then now through my journey, I'm able to kind of take off that straight jacket, that that fake drag, and I'm able to now just really be myself, which is a, you know, a messy, more complex, um, <laughs> Form of Jack with 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 uh, with a slightly more complicated sense of gender and sexuality, so yeah. So I use RuPaul as my kind of my metaphor for for my own trajectory and my own career. But but more than anything, I just have a complete obsession and love for RuPaul and a love for what RuPaul has brought to the world through Drag Race. And I'm desperate one day to meet her. This is all, you right now are a part of a long con. Me just trying to desperately get her attention. And I know one day I'll meet her and probably say something terrible and like fall down the stairs in front of her or she'll hate me. So maybe it's best I never meet her. but yeah, we'll no, see what we're, happens.
1: We're going to make we're going to make this Thank happen. You. This is this is the official launch of the Jack Guinness Meets RuPaul campaign. You can sign up to our GoFundMe page. <laughs> uh- <laughs> I'm just going to
2: use that to uh, that's going to be my beer money to be honest. That's nice.
1: <laughs> That's not going to be useful. Um, Okay, it's time for our lessons in love segment. So this is the part of the show where I ask every guest to share something that they've learned from their previous relationships and offer a little bit of advice. So Jack, what is your lesson in love today? Thank
2: you. I've got so many girlfriends that I listen to all their um, problems, Mm. love lives. Um, So I've got a lot to say on this. My main bit of love advice is that people show you who they are listen to them.
0: Mm.
2: People tell you who they are really early on in relationships. And because we don't want to hear, we lie to ourselves about who they are, what they can offer. And we waste a lot of time finding out what was obvious in the very beginning. And this can be so obvious. I've had friends that have gone on dates with guys that are like, I do not want a girlfriend. I just want to have fun. And six months later, they're like, I don't think he wants a girlfriend even. He's been messing me around. And I'm like, oh my God, he literally said he doesn't want a girlfriend. And she was like, yeah, but I don't think he meant it. And I'm like, no, he definitely, and he said, I mean this. This is 100%. Non-negotiable. And I'm like, yeah, but I thought I could convince him to love me. And that if I did, I'd mean more because he didn't want a girlfriend. That must mean he must really love me. And I'm like, oh my god, you're wasting everyone's time. You're wasting my time now. And I and I do it too, you know, they're they're red flags earlier in relationships. We're like, is this person using me or is this person just a complete asshole? And you ignore it because you're like, oh, I like their shoes, or they made me laugh or they showed me a tiny bit of human kindness. So I'll go out with them for three years.
1: (laughs) So true. It's so true. You're so like, I think we all, we're all romantics to a certain degree. Deluded fools. Yeah. Well, essentially that's what I mean. Like (laughs) we want to believe the best in people. So we end up deluding ourselves and convincing ourselves that, oh no, they'll change. Oh no. Like, yes, they, they did do that one really bad thing. And, yeah, like they did. They did sleep with someone else, but they're they're not like that, you know. They would never do that again. They would, ne- and you know, it's just you convince yourself all of these things, and you get trapped. But I think you're, you're always phrasing
2: things. it though, like you're a victim. You're like, oh, but I'm just a romantic. I'm like, no, we we it benefits us because then we get this narrative of like we're the victim. How could they do this to us? And it's like, no, 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 no. They're like clearly a nightmare, and we yeah. looted ourselves because we we were getting something back as well from this, like we're getting to perpetuate some weird patterns, something, there's something fucked up that we're getting out of it as well. And I think we just need to really be brave and see who people are and probably just see who who we really are as well. Like Mm
1: -hmm. we're
2: responsible for the patterns that we create.
1: I agree, and it's really hard to see that. I think the victim thing, you do paint yourself as a victim in your own head in relationships most of the time. I think that's kind of what we're wired to do. So it is actually really hard to pull yourself out of it and, and be like, no, 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 this person is just a bad person. They're not the right person for me. Or that how about anymore. that,
2: though, not just, not they're a bad person, because we always want them to but be a good right guy and a bad yeah. guy. And, and, and what I'm learning now with breakups is... It's much easier for me to go, they did this, or like, I'm I'm the victim, or, and it's like, no, sometimes we don't need to make it toxic to get out. We don't need it to get really bad to get out. It, we can just turn to that person and go, look, I really love you, I respect you, or I don't love you, and I, I don't really respect you. We're not right for each other, and I don't need to turn you into an evil person in my head or to my friends to explain why this didn't work out. We can't go out with everyone, like, I don't, we don't want to go out, It would be life would be a nightmare if everyone was right for us. Like the majority of people you meet in your life are not going to be right for you. That's okay. Mm. You don't need to turn them into the devil and you don't need to be the victim. You can just mm. say thanks, but no thanks.
1: That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a new listener to this show, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or anywhere else. You can comment and leave us a rating too so that more people can find us. Keep up with everything to do with the show on Instagram. Just search Millennial Love. See you soon.